Welcome to Law Talk, a podcast series produced by the University of Minnesota Law School, featuring events, webinars, and panel discussions about diverse topics at the intersection of law, policy, and education. On this episode, the inaugural Matheson Lecture, Navigating Uncharted Skies, Corporate Leadership in a Time of Crisis, with Minnesota Law alumnus Peter Carter, explores the decision-making process during the global coronavirus pandemic at Delta Airlines. Peter Carter has served as Delta's Executive Vice President, Chief Legal Officer, and Corporate Secretary since July of 2015. As Chief Legal Officer, Peter oversees Delta's legal, regulatory, compliance, government affairs, and corporate strategy groups worldwide, and serves on the Delta Leadership Committee. The Matheson Lecture in Corporate Governance is a newly endowed lecture series created to highlight the valuable work being done within the Minnesota Law Corporate Institute. Providing opening remarks is Gary W. Jenkins, Dean and William S. Patty, Professor of Law at Minnesota Law. This lecture was recorded on October 18th, 2021. It is also available for viewing on the Minnesota Law YouTube channel. Subscribe to the Minnesota Law Podcast feed on SoundCloud or via your preferred podcast network for more Law Talk episodes as well as other podcast content produced by Minnesota Law. Good afternoon. What a treat to be back together in Mondale Hall for a big event. This is very exciting. Uh, welcome students, faculty, friends to the University of Minnesota Law School's inaugural Matheson Lecture in Corporate Governance. I'm Gary Jenkins, I'm the Dean of the Law School. And I want to start by telling you a little bit about this newly established lecture series, uh, which is made possible thanks to the generosity of Dean and Diana Matheson. Dean is a member of the class of 2008, uh, and Diana, Dean and Diana are watching. They're here with us in spirit. They're in California, um, and they're on Zoom, and we say hello to them. Uh, the lecture advances the mission of our corporate institute, and it pays tribute to Dean's father, the legendary professor, John Matheson. I wanna thank them for their thoughtful gift. I wanna welcome all the members of the Matheson family uh, who are here today. Now, as many of you know, John, who holds the Alumni Distinguished Professorship in Law, is a beloved figure in our community. His contributions to Minnesota law, to legal education, and the state are immense. He joined the law school 39 years ago and continues to make a huge impact on our students and our mission in so many ways. He is faculty director of the law school's corporate institute. He's also a member of the American Law Institute. It's no secret that John is an extraordinary teacher and mentor. When I talk to students and alumni about faculty who have made a difference in their lives, the name John Matheson 
always comes up. Alumni across decades remember with fondness and gratitude learning corporate and business law from Professor Matheson. As a teacher, he's been the law school's Kenyan Award recipient for excellence in teaching a record five times. He is also the first law professor to be honored by the university with their outstanding contribution to graduate and professional education award. And he's been inducted into the Academy of Distinguished Teachers at the university. John, we are lucky to have you as part of our Minnesota law community. Thank you for making such a difference in the lives of our students, our alumni, and your colleagues. Now, additionally, this lecture also highlights the work of Minnesota Law's Corporate Institute, which, as I mentioned, is led by John, um, but also Professor Kristen Hickman and its executive director, Emily Buckholtz, class of 2010. And under their collective leadership, the Corporate Institute creates and maintains valuable partnerships with the Twin Cities business community. It provides hands-on learning opportunities for our students and contributes to Minnesota's law's uh, commitment to leadership development. The Corporate Institute prepares students interested in business careers to lead through our business law clinic our corporate externship program and corporate fellowship program, as well as bringing terrific speakers to campus and supporting our JD MBA joint degree program with the Carlson School of Management. Here at Minnesota Law, through our teaching, our research, our engagement, our convening power, we help address and understand a wide range of critical local, national, and global issues. And there is no doubt that the global public health pandemic we've experienced for the past several months has challenged communities and organizations across the globe. These are unprecedented times, and this is an unprecedented crisis. And in unprecedented uh, times, uncertainties, we know that lawyers are helping organizations respond. Lawyers are helping them navigate through these challenging times. Lawyer leaders are making a difference as they always do. And one of those Minnesota law lawyer leaders is here with us today. And we are honored to have our alum and friend, Peter Carter, class of 91 here. He is the executive vice president, chief legal officer, and corporate secretary at Delta Airlines. And today he'll be giving a talk called Navigating Unchartered Skies, Corporate Leadership in a Time of Crisis. Now, we didn't invite Peter today just because we knew we could save the law school money on airfare. <laughs> no, we did it because Peter has been directly involved in helping to guide and lead one of America's largest corporations, a Fortune 100 entity, 
and one of Fortune's top 50 most admired companies through an unprecedented set of challenges. As chief legal officer, Peter oversees the airline's legal, regulatory, compliance, government affairs, and corporate strategy groups worldwide. He also serves on the Delta Leadership Committee, and he advocates for open, fair and open skies, pro-consumer international joint ventures, and smart regulation. He engages with government stakeholders on aviation policy matters in the US, Mexico, Korea, UK, China, and EU on competition policy, alliances, privacy, and compliance. Prior to joining Delta, Peter was a partner right here in town at Dorsey and Whitney, where he chaired the firm's policy committee and the Securities Litigation and Enforcement Practice Group. He is a fellow of the American College of Trial Lawyers and has been recognized by numerous organizations and publications, including being honored with a Burton Award for public interest. And he was named Antitrust Lawyer of the Year in 2013 by the Best Lawyers in America. He serves on the boards of Delta Airlines Foundation, the Alliance Theater, the Chick-fil-A Foundation, the United Way of Greater Atlanta, and the Georgia Chamber of Commerce. Before I turn the mic over to Peter, I'd like to invite all of you to join us at a reception in our back commons um, following the lecture. It's right upstairs on the main floor in Mondale Hall. We'll also have Stein Plaza and Terrace, which is adjacent, uh, open for those who wish to go outside, in which you're allowed to take off your mask if you do that. Uh, and thankfully, it looks like the weather is cooperating with us. So with that, I think we're all settled in. So I will say, welcome to Minnesota Law, Peter. We are so honored to have you here today. Please join me. Dean Jenkins, thank you for that uh, kind introduction. It is absolutely wonderful to be back in Minnesota among so many friends and to be back at the law school. It's been years since I've been in this building and I don't know if I have good memories or bad memories of this room. I have good memories because Professor Matheson taught business corporations here, but I think this was also the site of numerous exams. Um, I especially want to thank Dean Jenkins uh, for the invitation to deliver the inaugural Matheson Lecture in Corporate Governance. It is an honor. And what a wonderful way for Dean and Diana to honor Dean's father, John Matheson. And it's wonderful. I can see the name tags and, and Judy's here and children and grandchild, I believe all here um, to honor John Matheson. Um, I also wanna thank you, John, for all you've done for the law school and all you've done for the community this last 40 years, and you've just started. A few words about Professor Matheson. Professor Matheson, we all know, is an outstanding teacher of corporate law. It's not an easy task, by the way, to bring 
corporate law and corporate governance to life. He has done that now for a couple generations of lawyers. Professor Matheson, I think, is a rare combination of three things. And I, by the way, have been the beneficiary of all three of these things. First, Professor Matheson is a thought leader and a scholar who literally wrote the book on Minnesota business corporations. And any lawyer in the world who has advised a Minnesota business corporation has had to rely on the scholarship of John Matheson. The second thing is that John Matheson doesn't just write and, and teach. He also is a practitioner. About 10% of his time, he told me earlier today. And I, I think it's fair to say that um, as of counsel to Kaplan Stranges, he has been asked to advise um, some of our nation's largest corporations um, on sensitive matters of great consequence. My guess is he doesn't talk about any of those things because he can't, but I happen to know he's done that over the years. And, and I think that's provided a pragmatism that informs his students of, of how business lawyers think about and solve real life business problems. And then third, and perhaps most importantly, because we're in the law school, is that John Matheson has a natural teaching ability and a charisma. He has taught hundreds, maybe thousands, because he takes double um, classes I saw earlier today, of students to become and help them to become business lawyers. And he's done this in a sustained way for 40 years with enthusiasm and passion. And we know that because he's been recognized five times with the Stanley Kenyon Award, which I believe, at least when I was here, the students vote the winner of that award. I don't know if that's still the case, but on a personal note, Professor Matheson was both my corporation's uh, professor and my wife's corporation's professor. She was the better student for sure. Um, and I did have the privilege of working with Professor Matheson on some matters in private practice. John, thank you for all you've done and for the privilege of being able to honor you today at this lecture. Today, I will be sharing with all of you how Delta Airlines navigated the crisis associated with the COVID-19 pandemic. I hope to give you a sense of how we led through the pandemic, how the legal team participated in that leadership, how the board governed the company during that crisis. And I'm also going to briefly address how we were thinking about ESG during the crisis. Before we get started, I want to acknowledge that I understand that the pandemic has impacted each and every one of us in this room and in the world, frankly, in substantial ways, um, and that many of us have experienced loss and heartache because of this pandemic. My focus on how Delta Airlines, a business, 
has navigated the crisis is not intended in any way to minimize the personal toll the pandemic has had on our families and our communities. I'd like to set the context for everyone because so much time has passed. Although as you look at it, the way the calendars work, the months work, not that much time has passed. On January 23rd, 2020, Wuhan, China was placed under quarantine because in two days, 13 people died and an additional 300 people were what was then known coronavirus. At Delta, we immediately started to monitor the situation. We believed two things right off the bat. One, we thought that this was going to be isolated to China. The second thing is that we believed that the public health authorities would be able to isolate this so that it would not become truly a pandemic and that they would isolate it the way they had MERS and SARS and avian flu. By the way, this is why even before the pandemic, if you go and look at our risk factors as a public company, we always identified the possibility of a virus that could impact our business. But we never believed as an enterprise that it could be a pandemic that in fact, basically shut down the airline industry. On February 2nd, 2020, which seems again, like a lifetime ago, even though it's not that many months ago, the Trump administration imposed travel restrictions to and from China in order to protect the US from the virus. And you may remember he was criticized for that at the time for being xenophobic. We believe still at that time that the virus would be isolated to China. At the time, our balance sheet was strong. We had more than sufficient liquidity. And China is such a small part of Delta's business and the U.S. industry that, frankly, we thought we were still going to have a, a strong year. If any of you have flown on Valentine's Day, with Delta, you'll know that it's a very special day for us because it has been the year where we have shared profits with our employees again before the pandemic. Um, and in February of 2020 on the 14th, we shared a record $1.6 billion of profit sharing from 2019 with our employees. That's basically like two months of pay for each of our employees. At that time, we had employee celebrations throughout the system. We felt very bullish. We really thought we were going to have the best 2020 or the best year ever in the history of the airline based on how good January had been and how good the first two weeks of February, even with what was going on in China, we believed that. Of course, all of that quickly changed for Delta Airlines and for frankly everybody because by March, a first case of COVID-19 had been positively identified in the US, in Italy, in Germany, in Japan, in Taiwan, and South Korea. By the 13th of March, which of course happened to be Friday the 13th, unfortunately, <laughs> uh, President Trump declared COVID-19 a national emergency and banned travel for all 
non-U.S. citizens from the U.K. and Europe traveling to the United States. By the way, that restriction exists to this very day. It, it's being lifted on the 8th of November, which we are very grateful has finally come. Countries around the world closed their borders overnight, and the focus of our international flights went from business travel and you know, people going to London to see Big Ben to repatriation flights. And what re repatriation means is we were bringing Americans back and then anybody from another country was leaving the country. Um, it was almost like something out of a 1920s movement. People were all going to their homelands. This was the end of the week. We all remember when the NBA canceled their season. This was the end of that week. Um, this was the week that youth sports was canceled. This was the week where uh, students were sent home from school. It also marked the day where we saw our demand disappear overnight. It won't surprise anyone that fear is the enemy of the airline industry. If people are afraid to fly, they're not going to buy tickets. And people were afraid. They were sincerely afraid to get on an airplane. I'm sure all of you in this room stopped traveling. Very few people traveled uh, once March 13th hit until many, many months later. So people began, rather people stopped buying tickets, which means we had no cash coming into the door. At the same time, people were canceling their flights, which means we had to issue refunds. This was happening in droves in every single market we served. The enormity of the situation hit us almost immediately. Our revenues disappeared. Our stock price went from $63 a share to $19 a share almost overnight. Our largest investor, which we were very proud of, Warren Buffett, went from being a bullish owner of Delta Airlines to selling his entire stake. And by early April, Delta Airlines was burning over $100 million each and every day. $100 million each and every day. We concluded quickly that the airline industry, by the way, it wasn't just Delta that was going through this, all the carriers in the United States were going through this, was in the midst of an existential crisis. In the spring, we were flying empty aircraft. Everybody stayed home. And our second quarter revenue that year tumbled 90% from 2019. We knew as a team we had to move fast and focus not on what we could not control, but on what, in fact, we could do. The lesson of that moment, by the way, was when everything's going badly, which of course it was, and there's nothing you can do to stop it because we were powerless against the pandemic. We needed to focus on what we could do. Under Ed's, Ed Bastian's leadership, we identified two areas of focus and, and, and our, we, we became laser focused on these areas. One was protecting our people and the other was protecting our cash. 
And all of this was done with an understanding that we needed to do these things without sacrificing our future. We wanted to make sure that our short-term decisions didn't inhibit our ability to recover when the recovery came. Because we all believed, by the way, that the pandemic would end. Now, we all thought it was going to be a four month. I think at first we thought three months and then four. And, you know, anyways, we're still in it, of course. Protecting our people and protecting our cash became the guiding principles of the leadership team and our board. It became the filter and focus through which we made every decision during the pandemic. By the way, it should be, um, it shouldn't surprise anyone, I hope, that our number one priority at Delta Airlines before the pandemic, during the pandemic, today is safety. That's the number one thing that we focus on as an organization. We viewed protecting the health of our people as a natural extension of that priority. And for us, it meant since our employees had to come to work every day, they needed to feel safe, they needed to feel healthy, they needed to feel taken care of. Because we've always believed that if we took care of our employees, they would take care of our customers and the customers would take care of our shareholders. At Delta, we call that the virtual circle. But protecting our people meant we needed to understand this virus that nobody understood. Um, and then we needed to be decisive about um, imposing business practices um, that protected our employees. And, and when I say decisive, we're, we're such a complex organization pre-pandemic it would take meetings and committees and process for a certain decision to be implemented. We, we couldn't afford to do that. We needed to be emboldened to make quick decisions without, frankly, the process that we had grown accustomed to. I'll give you an example of one thing we did as a team pretty quickly. Who remembers that there was a little bit of just a misunderstanding about the power of masks Initially, it was sort of don't wear a mask and, and save the mask for the medical professions. And, and um, you know, we were all very confused. But then at some point, and I can't remember who exactly articulated this, we had our we had put a medical advisory panel together that helped us with this. But at some point, it became crystal clear that masks stop the spread. As soon as that was the case, we imposed a mask requirement for all our employees and for all of the customers of Delta Airlines. Now today, the FAA has a requirement that everybody wear masks in airports and on, on, on uh, aircraft. But we had done that before the federal government, some weeks before that, based on just what we had learned and understood after we went to school to understand the power of masks. Now at the time, um, masks were hard to find and, I, and our our employees are amazing because they just found masks. They found ways to wear masks every day to work. Um, and it was one small way that we could, again, help our people feel protected. We also created a, um, a, a testing program where each and every employee could be tested at least one time a week. Um, we had 53 on-site testing centers, and this was in partnership with CVS and Quest. And it became so important for our employees because when we first started this testing program, we didn't know 
that folks could spread COVID through asymptomatic, being asymptomatic. No, nobody really understood that. But this testing program, all of a sudden people were coming to work completely asymptomatic and testing positive. Well, if they tested positive at Delta, they'd be sent home and quarantined with full pay for 14 days. But our medical advisors told us the fact that we were doing that for our employees as often as they wanted, providing tests, we saved lives because those folks who, would, who were, didn't know they were, they didn't know they were COVID positive. We also set up 18 uh, vaccination sites throughout the country. Today, 90% of our employees are vaccinated. Again, it was a way we felt that we would protect our people, make them feel safe in the face of COVID. I wanna talk a little bit about protecting our cash because that was really all about ensuring that our balance sheet was robust and that we had enough cash in the door to withstand basically what I said earlier, burning $100 million of cash a day over a period of time. Um, we knew that it was going to be an unknown period of time, and we knew that we were going to be generating substantial losses. So that was the reason why that became such a critical focus. I want to talk now about the role of the law department in helping execute around protecting our people and protecting our cash. The law department at Delta Airlines is like most law departments in large corporations. It is a partner to the business. It helps facilitate, accelerate, and drive business objectives. We are one of the few handful of functions that has historical knowledge because you know, business leaders turn over and are moved into different areas. We have visibility across the entire organization. We use the analogy or the metaphor of being like an FAA tower. We can see everything from where we are. My team is extremely versatile, extremely smart. Lawyers are fast learners and the lawyers at Delta Airline, the legal team there is, they're all fast learners. Um, eager to jump into new challenges and lawyers and my team, they're great problem solvers. So you think about Delta, you think about the fact we're in a crisis and we've got this great resource, the law department. I am proud to say that these attributes proved to be invaluable to Delta during the crisis. And I'll give you an example because um, we talked a little bit about um, the fact that we needed to get smart about the virus. Who did the CEO turn to to get smart about the virus? The legal team. I think Ed Bastian understood right away that these are folks who tend to be able to learn fast and they're rough and ready and they're able to talk to other professionals, the medical profession. And so we had a group of people that you know, was working with our medical advisory panel in order to really understand what's the latest study on the, the, the latest um, therapeutics. When are the vaccines coming out? Um, how is, uh, what is the, what does the testing supply look like? All of those issues were issues that were driven and handled uh, by the law department. 
what that meant is that the law department had to basically, like the entire enterprise, take the priorities that it, we had carefully set for 2020, in essence, throw them aside and immediately change its focus. Another example is anyone who's flown Delta knows that we're very proud of the Delta Care Clean Standard. This clean standard is one where we disinfect every aircraft for every flight. Well, the thing about a disinfectant on a flight is that before we can use a disinfectant, we needed to get EPA approval. And by the way, it's not easy to get EPA to approve anything quickly ever. Someone on my team who had zero EPA experience, was not an environmental lawyer, had not learned from Professor Kloss, um, was asked, we got to get this approved. We have a new disinfectant that we want to use each and every day. Uh, and she went, she partnered with outside counsel, went to Washington, talked to the EPA, uh, and that now today is the disinfectant that's been approved to be used uh, each and every day on each and every turn of each and every flight. I mentioned earlier that the law department led, led rather the creation of our testing centers. It led the creation of the vaccine centers. Um, it was critical in, in really creating partnerships with organizations that we had never created partnerships with before. You know, the airline industry has its list of vendors like any industry. We've got Boeing, we've got Airbus, we've got GE, we've got Honeywell, there's, there's many, many others. They all became almost irrelevant. What we needed to do is learn how to partner with organizations that we had never worked with before. CVS, Quest, the Mayo Clinic, Emory. One of the things we did, which was, um, I think, very exciting, we were trying to reopen international travel. And the US government was certainly not willing to just um, reopen. In fact, they still haven't. They're gonna be opening it soon. We decided to start with the CDC and, and Mayo, a pilot program that would allow Americans to go to Italy. We needed the Italian government support of this. And what we did is we created a testing protocol where if you provided a negative test 72 hours before your flight and you agreed to a antigen test at the airport, which we set up the facility and you got a negative test there, you could go to Italy. Um, we started that last Christmas, 5,000 people did that. Meanwhile, Mayo was studying the results of, of those folks. And then by the way, once you land in Italy, there's a third test. Well, that test proved, by the way, that if you had those two tests before you went to Italy, your chances of getting COVID or testing positive for COVID were something like one in a million. And, and that ended up becoming a, a, a study that was published in the Mayo proceeding. And it was something that we went to Washington and said, look, you can reopen the international borders. You can do it with a PCR test. You can do it this way, which, which is gonna be one of the things we expect the government will do uh, when they reopen on November 8th. The lesson for the law department was that as lawyers, we needed to think about what we do broadly beyond our area of expertise. And if we saw an opportunity that the crisis provided, we needed to try to help solve, to help drive. 
we needed to be willing to jump into areas that had nothing to do with our substantive expertise because there was nobody. There was nobody. It wasn't going to be us. It may not get done. We had to co-create and drive solutions and drive them hard, all in a very dynamic uh, environment um, and embracing all along the way the creation of unorthodox partnerships. I know that all sounds simple, but it was really intense. And my team, I could not be more proud because, you know, what's interesting about lawyers is we all are very proud of our expertise. But, you know, that expertise can hold you back. And it was just delightful to see as members of the team took on new challenges and were able to do things and drive outcomes that they never thought imaginable. While I'm talking about the law department, though, I would be remiss uh, if I didn't address the impact that the pandemic had on the team, because like every organization, um, they were working from home and they were working from home with the stress of managing family uh, in a world where many of the support structures that we were all relying on were missing. Um, they didn't, schools were closed, childcare uh, centers were closed. The family that they would rely on to come and take care of their ch children were not available because of the fear of COVID. From their home offices, my team was basically working around the clock during this crisis, helping Delta meet the challenge. They rose to the occasion, there's no doubt, and they've been recognized many times for doing that. But the stress was real, and it continues to this day. And sadly, I actually, two members of my department died during, during COVID. One uh, from COVID, and, and, and one had some sort of an aneurysm uh, along the way. And there's no question in my mind that, that the stress of just the world that we were all operating in was part of that. The stress is so real, not just with my team, but throughout Delta after what we've been through. And I'd suggest that all of you and your families have probably felt that same stress that it's required us as an organization to make our number one priority for 2021, which we're almost done with, to be taking care of ourselves and taking care of each other. What do I mean by that? Every staff meeting that I have or any of my leaders have with their teams begins with one question. How are you? How are you? And it ends with, how's your team doing? Right? We want to make sure that everybody is checked in on and doing okay. On Fridays, we have a all hands call every Friday at one o'clock. And the last thing I say during that call is I just want to remind you, do one thing this weekend that gives you joy. Just one thing. It, you know, you hate to be that, um, I think, straightforward about something like that, but we have found at Delta that it's really important and necessary. There's not an endless supply of resilience in the world, and the teams burned a lot of it to get through that initial time. But it is a slog, and so we need to recharge uh, and be ready for the full recovery. I want to talk about protecting our cash because that was the business challenge we had, burning the $100 million of cash each and every day. 
We did three things as, as an organization, all of which I'm proud to say the law department was, was leading and played a critical role in. We knew, by the way, that we couldn't sell our core assets like airplanes. We were, we were going to need them once we got out of this. Um, so what we did first was we, just to step back, we were fortunate. We had a strong balance sheet before the pandemic. We were not an airline that leased airplanes. We owned our airplanes. Um, so the first thing we did was we accessed the capital markets and we securitized every asset that we had available to Delta Airlines. Every aircraft, every gate, every slot, every route, even our frequent flyer program was securitized. What that meant is in just a few short months, we raised $25 billion, which was extremely critical for us as an organization. You can imagine the impact that had on my capital markets and, and, and securities team. We literally had 24 hour clock shifts to prepare the documents associated with the various capital market transactions. So we'd have one team kind of work in the day, one team working the night. Um, we knew that without cash, the airline wasn't gonna survive. Um, so we needed to change the way we work. Now I will tell you that once all those got closed, we sent everybody on a trip and we shut off their emails because we didn't want them, uh, we wanted them to again recharge. The second thing we did is we immediately went to Washington, D.C. as an industry to uh, seek support from the prior administration and Congress. And within three weeks, so remember, the 13th is when it hit the fan. By the 24th of March, then President Trump signed into law the first CARES Act. That was passed by the U.S. Senate 99 to 0, which is amazing because I don't think that has ever happened since and may never happen again. But anyways, 99 to zero. And in the end, with both the Trump administration and the Biden administration providing support, um, more than $50 billion in grants and loans was provided to the U.S. airline industry. What that meant for is for basically those three weeks and you know weeks leading up to the extensions of what we call the CARES Act, uh, my team was in Washington. I and others were on the phone constantly talking through how things needed to be structured because we had another crisis called 9-11, obviously. And following that, um, the airline industry did receive support. But that particular support tent was all loans. And every airline after that had gone through bankruptcy because Unfortunately, it, it institutionalized into their balance sheet some debt service that meant the airlines could not survive. We didn't want to make that mistake again. We wanted to make sure that airlines could emerge from this crisis with strong balance sheets and they wouldn't be forced into a bankruptcy situation. In any event, I want to publicly thank uh, both administrations and the Congress for their critical support of the airline industry during our time of need. We, we really could not have gotten through this without um, government support. The third thing we did was we needed to do everything we could to reduce our operating costs. The goal was we wanted to reduce it by at least 50%. We, of course, wanted to do even better with revenues down 90%. 
We did this by parking uh, 600 aircraft in, in the desert and asking our employees to take unpaid leaves of absence. Um, what's amazing is that we said to our employees, we're in this crisis, we don't wanna lay people off, but the only way we know we won't have to lay people off is if enough of you take unpaid leaves of absence. So out of our 90,000 employees, 40,000 employees took unpaid leaves of absence. And what's wonderful is because of that, which was pure sacrifice, because of that, Delta Airlines did not have to lay off a single employee because of the crisis, not one. Really amazing. The other thing we had to do was restructure um, many of our significant agree agreements with our vendors. And that was really a moment for the legal team to shine. Our legal team had to look at thousands of contracts, not 10 or 20, thousands of contracts and either terminate, renegotiate, or amend the terms. Because we didn't, part of it is we weren't going to be focused on all the initiatives we thought we were. We were focused on survival. And part of it is we didn't have the cash to do all those things, the things those contracts required us to do. The best example of that would be in 2020, we were expected to take delivery of um, a couple dozen Airbus aircraft. Those are significant capital assets, obviously, at an airline. And we needed to tell them unilaterally that we would not be accepting delivery of those aircraft. You can imagine that an aircraft manufacturer has expansive contractual protections. Expansive. We had no choice. There was nothing else we could do. Ultimately, they had to accept the fact that we couldn't take delivery because we didn't have the cash to pay for those air, um, aircraft. And ultimately, they, like a business partner, came and helped us to restructure our order book. Law firms were also a great help because I reached out to all the firms and said, we can't pay you until the end of the year. And maybe then I'm gonna ask for more time, but we don't have the cash. And firms work for free, firms were willing to wait to be paid. I'm proud to say every firm was paid in full. I'm lawyers here who work for some of those firms can appreciate that. The lesson we learned from all of that, because it's not obviously the way we want to work or like to work or was accustomed to working, was that during a real crisis, when the enterprise is at risk, the legal team needs to recalibrate the nature of acceptable legal risk that an organization can face. Contractual compliance in that context becomes a consideration, but not the only consideration. And there's no question that at Delta Airlines, we did take on some additional legal risk. We also had to move quickly. Again, something that large corporations are not known for their swiftness, um, but we didn't have the luxury to take the time and, and consideration of the kind of depth of analysis that we might've been accustomed to during ordinary times. Process gave way to action. 
I've been focused on the role of the law department and I could go on because I'm very proud of what they did, but I want to now move to the matter of governance, um, especially the role of our board and how our engagement with the board changed. We've never been through a crisis with our board uh, before, but we knew two things about our board. One is it's great. It's engaged. uh, They work well together. They had worked well with us before um, the pandemic. And then the second thing was as individuals, these were outstanding people, outstanding resources, all of whom had led crisis in their in their business or government careers. It included a former secretary of defense, the former head of the FAA, the current uh, CEO of, of P&G, the former CEO of Home Depot. These are people who had relevant, deep experience managing through crisis. This recognition led us to approach the board with humility and openness because we knew they could not just provide oversight, but that they could actually help. They could roll up the sleeves and support us. It won't surprise anyone here that just about everything changed with respect to how we worked with our board during this period. Those of you who work with public company boards know that you put schedules years ahead, that you have certain topics that show up each particular board meeting. It might be ERM, it might be succession planning, strategy, uh, long-term planning, capital allocation. For us, our governance schedule was completely pushed aside. This meant that rather than follow this cadence that we had typically followed in the past, the board was being asked to govern the needs of the day. And the needs of the day were quite serious. For this, for us, this meant a couple things. One is we needed to be completely transparent. We couldn't sugarcoat a, a single thing with this board. We needed to tell them exactly how bad this was. Um, we also needed to talk the board, talk to the board about the problem to help them understand it such so they could talk through how we might solve the problem. And I say that because, you know, you typically with a board would be proposing the solution, right? You don't necessarily want to have that conversation with your board, but we really wanted to talk the problem with the board if we were going to get them to actually engage and help. It also meant we need to communicate with that board constantly, constantly, uh, and we did. We had, in the early days, two board calls at least every week, and that's unusual, highly unusual, but we knew we needed to keep the, the, the board with us on this journey every step of the way. We didn't talk about allocation of capital because we didn't have any capital to allocate. We didn't talk about succession planning because the team was focused on on solving the problem. Um, The board understood what we needed to do. And I'll give you one concrete example. Because cash was so important and we were going into capital markets, uh, the capital market transactions with a number of different, uh, uh, different debt instruments, our typical way of dealing with the board was each one of those, you'd first get finance committee approval and then you get board approval and you do them, you know, basically in seriatim. Our board chair during one of our calls said, it seems to me that it would really help you, the management team, if we could give you blanket approval. 
I mean, doesn't that tell you the board gets it, right? They fully understood what we needed. Huge vote of confidence for management to have the board do that. And a real sign that the board understood the criticality of the situation that we were in. The board moved at the speed required by the needs of the business, not the other way around. I want to say this again. The board moved at the speed required by the needs of the business and not the other way around. This made the world of difference for us in the midst of the crisis. The board also provided tremendous moral support because by the way, we couldn't, well, I'll I'll get to this. Um, They made it clear that they were with us. I can't overemphasize how important it was to the Delta leadership team to know that they had our backs and that they weren't, we weren't in this alone, right? When you think about crisis, think about having people along the side you that have been through it, right? Extremely powerful. They were not only available at a moment's notice, but they also joined us as leaders in accepting a pay cut. So one of the things our CEO did is said, I'm not going to take a salary. And the rest of the leadership team took a 50% pay cut. And the board said, we're going to join the CEO and we're not going to take a salary. Truly remarkable that they did that. And just such an indication, again, that they understood the criticality of the situation. Individual board members would reach out to all of us, call and say, you know, how are you doing? Um, they, they couldn't pay us, right? Because there was no money to pay us. But at one point they gave each of us, and this might sound silly, but just a memento that, you know, it was a, it was a, a vase that said, we appreciate the commitment. And, you know, even that was a powerful symbol that, that they were with us, uh, and supportive, but they also did something really critical because During the crisis, the management team was in the weeds, right? We were managing day-to-day the tactic of making sure we had enough cash and making sure our people were safe. And the board did a great job at the right time of seeing the horizon of the broader landscape and helping us as an organization adjust and lift our heads a little bit from that day in, day out. And I think the best example of that would be following the George Floyd murder and during the contentious contentious election and the intense focus on Georgia during that election, our board helped us think about what is our role at Delta Airlines? What's the framework we need to use before we weigh in on political issues, which is something that now corporations are being asked to do? Our board also helped us think through and and was extremely important in identifying the incredible stress that was coming through the pandemic and how that could impact our culture, how that could impact our recovery, and how, as a result, we needed as an organization coming out of the worst of the pandemic to fiercely focus on the health and well-being of our people to ensure continued future success. All of this brings me to uh, ESG, uh, and I've just got brief comments on ESG, and then we'll have time for questions, I hope. 
Um, we all know that the expectations around ESGs are, are elevated for companies today. Um, and we've seen corporate governance evolve from a shareholder centric model to one that places the health and resilience and long-term sustainability of the company at, it, at its center. So really now shareholders are one of many stakeholders that we need to focus on as an enterprise. COVID has taught us at Delta though, that this new model of corporate governance is not static and set in stone, but rather at different times, we think you need to be focused on different stakeholders. Um, and I think that the primacy of which stakeholder you might prioritize is gonna be uh, depending on the business challenges of the day. At Delta, for us, what that meant during COVID, it was, I mean, first of all, our commitment to ESG was not gonna waver. Um, we made a commitment before the pandemic to be a carbon neutral airline. That happened literally on the 14th of February, 2020. And we never wavered from that commitment, but we knew that we were gonna to have to do it differently during our own timeframe. Um, and ultimately we did once the worst of, of COVID was behind us. But for us, really the main focus and the main stakeholder that we had to focus on was our employees. Um, it was critical that they and their health and well-being was something that would receive, I think, our time and attention as leaders. And in some ways, we were obsessed with that. We believed it was the only way that ultimately we would be able to drive a, a full recovery. Obviously, cash, you know, those are table stakes, right? Your, your investors require you to make sure that you're a liquid organization. But on the pure ESG front, that was the focus. In closing, um, I have three thoughts, and then we'll hopefully have time for questions. One, a dynamic risk that is not well understood and is potentially catastrophic is one that requires dynamic, resilient leadership by the board and the senior management teams. You cannot be cemented to the processes, no matter how great they were or are, of the past and the ways you worked in the past, but you've gotta be willing to look at things differently and work differently. The second thought is we found at Delta that the speed of making decisions was critical because in the face of catastrophic risk, if we didn't make decisions quickly, promptly, if you didn't act promptly, we were gonna be acted upon. And the results of that would not have been uh, satisfactory to any of our stakeholders. We needed to go to Washington fast to avoid bankruptcies. We needed to access the capital markets quickly. The ability to make quick decisions is not naturally wired into an organization, the size and scope of Delta Airlines. I think that we'll come out and we are coming out of this pandemic a more decisive organization, which is gonna be more efficient in this post pandemic marketplace. And then the last thing is crisis breeds community and community brings strength. We learned this at Delta. 
We're closer to our board, to each other, to our teams, to the front lines, to everyone. We went through something together. And ultimately, this, I think, is what places us in a great place to keep climbing and fully recover beyond our success in 2019. So what's the end of the story that started with burning of $100 million of cash a day? After losing $15 billion in 2020, we are now generating positive cash flow. And last week, we announced our first quarter of profit, which was over $200 million since the fourth quarter of 2019. We could not have done it without the outstanding performance of our 75,000 employees who day in, day out, even in the face of a mysterious virus that nobody knew anything about, ensure that we provide an on-time, enjoyable, safe experience to our hundreds of thousands of customers every day. Thank you for your time. Again, it's my honor to be here to honor uh, John Matheson. And I think we have time for a few questions, I hope. So thank you. Alex. Hi, Peter. Thanks for the shout out earlier. This slide is important for students to take environmental laws. <laughs> And so can you talk at all about the role of outside counsel during the pandemic? I would think on the one hand, it's an emergency, everything is new, you may, it may make sense to do a lot in-house, but then I would also think that there would be other specialty areas and maybe other firms, other specialties um, that, that you might need to rely on for the first time. So can you talk about that? Yeah, so we did have to use different lawyers that we had never used before. And the best example of that was the, um, the, the healthcare, privacy, HIPAA, you know, what, what one can do uh, with respect to testing and vaccines, those issues became gargantuan. And so we needed to really get a great team from outside counsel to assist us in those areas. And then of course, everything I've talked about, we couldn't have done with great outside counsel help uh, because all of the capital market transactions to securitize, for example, our frequent flyer program at that time, that was very novel. It was a $9 billion deal. Um, and I think we had, I don't know how many, I, I think we had 50 lawyers at Davis Polk working on that with us. So we, um, we spent an enormous amount of time with our outside counsel and they were great partners. Yes. I mean, following many miles on Delta, I'd be assured by increasing cases. But when you're moving fast and you have to get accurate information, who did you find the most reliable health information? Yeah, so for us, it was a combination. It, really, the Mayo Clinic was outstanding. They we uh, reached out to them early um, and they provided us a team and we were we were talking to them every day. In fact, we ended up hiring our first chief health officer, Henry Ting, from the Mayo Clinic. And, and it, it, I can't, I'm so impressed by that institution. They were really a wonderful partner. Unfortunately, our healthcare company were self-insured and I won't name who that was. They didn't have that expertise. You know, they, they more managed claims and they didn't really have the core medical kind of insights that we were looking for in trying to understand how this pandemic was gonna resolve and how we might recover and how we might operate safely. 
I noticed you didn't say the CDC, which having read Michael Lewis's book, Premonition, they're comparatively slow moving. So the CDC was based, is based in Atlanta and, and we, we had numerous meetings with them and it was very frustrating. Honestly, they were, they were, they were not very um, pragmatic, I will say, and did not move at, at the speed of business for sure. Yes. How did the legal department's relationship with other internal departments change? It's um, I would say that the credibility of the department just, I would say, continued to elevate throughout the pandemic. Um, I think people saw the team for what it was and what it did, which was great. Yes, sir. Hi, um, you sound like an amazing leader, a great inspiration of all. And I want to ask, what kind of mindset or mentalities do you have throughout your career that helped you become the way you are today? Uh, you know, that's a really hard question. It's a, but, but, you know, I, I think, you know, honestly, I've always worked with phenomenal people. I've always had great mentors my entire career. And, uh, and I think I've really benefited from, from that. Alex and I practiced law together for a number of years. Um, you know, there are a lot of really good people who, if you pay attention, you can learn from. Yes. Um, did Delta have any sort of like plan for a black swan event like this? Um, what kind of medicine are you guys taking now to have to I guess, is there any way you really can prepare for Well, it's a great question. So we have the best emergency response system imaginable because, and, and we've had to bring that up a couple of times. We had a bombing at the Brussels airport that was at the Delta counter. We had a, an outage and, you know, we've got a room and phone call. I mean, it's amazing, right? This was not something that was in that playbook. This was new. Um, I think that the answer is yes, we now have a playbook. I think that the hard thing about that is a risk like a worldwide pandemic is a risk that can only be mitigated. It cannot be eliminated. And so how do you mitigate the risk? Well, one of the things, this whole thing with masks, we now have a warehouse full of masks and you know, the certain things you need to have that we now have. Um, we now have the ability to put up vaccine centers and tests overnight. We've got a supply of 4 million tests that we're just going to have and make sure we have, you know, those types of things are what we think are important for the next pandemic in the event, you know, there may be another pandemic. So, yes. You talked about the need to, uh, was it obvious what systems needed to be changed? What systems you know, I would say, yeah. The functional presumption of we have to do it differently, or or the existing structures are probably up to the challenge or something. You know, what I would say is that um, many of the existing structures, it wasn't obvious, right? Necessarily, I think some of it was just required, and so it was it was just the way we had to work and. And later we realized we're really working differently. I would say that we found ourselves bypassing structures and, and making, and, and, and part of it is, um, so, so, you know, I would say you'd want an organization to be empowered for decisions to be made 
everywhere, right? And, and leaders on every level to be able to make decisions. We didn't really have the ability to do that in this crisis. We ended up basically having a group of us that met every morning. And so a lot of decisions had to be made from the top down, which is not necessarily the best thing for an organization, but in a crisis is not unusual. And now we're all, I'll say, raising up a bit and trying to push decision-making down because I think the most successful organizations empower people to make decisions, take risks, you know, some will work out, some won't. Um, so that, so, but, but we just ended up bypassing some of those processes. Yes, ma'am. Well, welcome to the law school. <laughs> Yes. So um, we uh, are deeply in integrated with our alliance partners, and a, a couple of them actually have gone through reorganizations. Aeromexico is in bankruptcy today. Latam is in bankruptcy today. Virgin Atlantic, we own 49% of, is, did an out-of-court restructuring. And we have been deeply involved in helping them through those processes, develop business plans. You know, we, we are publicly uh, the dip lender, the debtor in possession lender in a couple of those situations. So um, we almost, because we have antitrust immunity, we treat them like they are us uh, to, a, to a certain extent. Um, they were helpful to us as well because of what they were seeing in the countries where they were. Because, you know, the, the tough thing about this pandemic, I said earlier, maybe not in this room, but, you know, we are globalists at Delta Airline. And, and a public health emergency really builds the walls of nationalism, right? Every country had its own travel restrictions. And it was, again, almost like a movie from the 20s where you'd have to show your papers to come into a country with your test results. All of that local knowledge we got from our partners. It was, it was really helpful from that perspective. Yes, Tim. So you mentioned the difference between relief that you saw from government in 9-11 versus this one. Uh, I'm curious, similar to what happened in the current program, is there a prospect for the airline being able to pay taxpayers taxpayers over the relief that you have? So, so um, you know, basically the way the relief worked was two-third grants, one-third loans, and the loans will be repaid. Um, we have... A, a, an economic analysis that shows the huge benefit that has been generated for the U.S. economy as a result of those uh, invested dollars to the industry. So we think that is sufficient. The other thing is, I didn't mention this, but those dollars didn't, you know, go to buy airplanes. The the terms of the CARES Act required us to use those dollars to pay our employees. So our paying those employees meant that they continued to work 
And the reason why that's important for the airline industry is if they weren't working and the pandemic is now at a place where people are ready to travel, the airline industry would need weeks to train all of those people under the various FAA requirements. So the federal government understood, wait a minute, if we really wanna make sure the economy is ready to go when people are ready to travel, we can't have this break with folks in the airline industry being trained. So we think that's something also that would, would mean that paying back the government really wouldn't be necessary or appropriate. Yes, sir. What So, um, you know, the one, the one thing I'd say is it's, it's what you hope is that people in the organization are all providing to you and the leadership team, the key information. If you truly need a piece of information to make a decision, you'll go get it. But then there's stuff you don't know you don't know. And that's where you're relying on smart people to say, hey, I've got to let you know Peter know so Peter can let Ed know or the board know. And, and so it's not perfect um, because things are moving fast. But I'd like to think that two things. One, we had good information. It may not have been perfect. But if you wait for perfect information, you're not going to be able to make the decisions you have to make in the time period you have to make them. And part of that, frankly, is, is, is judgment and, and relying on the good judgment of your team. Yes, Jim, good to see you. Um, I know that as a general counsel, you spend a certain amount of relief thinking about enterprise risk management. My guess is as you were breaking down barriers, dealing with these existential issues, um, there was probably some stress on that. Has this caused you to rethink what your enterprise risk management is going to look like in the future? Like bringing back more? Thank you. Jeff. So we we uh, we have something called the Des Delta Risk Council, and and it's a great group because it's a CFO, it's the head of cyber, it's the head of operations, it's me, it's a broad group of leaders, and it definitely has changed our view of risk. And I what I would say is that we are we are we are identifying uh, ways that we can understand exogenous risk better because that's ultimately what this was. And, and again, it's, it's not easy to do that, um, but, but it's something that we're trying to figure out what resources exist that we can better identify this type of risk before it, you know, before it falls on us and causes us to be in a, a similar kind of situation. Um, but the one thing I'd say is we've learned that the best organizations, the most successful organizations, are very comfortable talking about risk. Well, I think we have to call time. Please join me in thanking. And while it is time, our time together is not over.
So uh, just again, a reminder that we have a reception. It's up one flight, our back commons and the adjacent outdoor space, Stein Terrace. Please join us. But before we do that, how about one more round of applause for John Madison. This podcast has been brought to you by the University of Minnesota Law School. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. And subscribe to our YouTube channel for more Minnesota Law stories, news, and information. To subscribe to the official Minnesota Law podcast channel, please visit soundcloud.com backslash Minnesota Law or find us on your preferred podcast network. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, the University of Minnesota or the University of Minnesota Law School. None of the content should be considered legal advice.